everyone. Welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, where we're five full-time analysts focused on institutional crypto research. If you aren't a subscriber, you're missing out, so visit the site while you're listening. One quick housekeeping item. This podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. I may personally own tokens that are mentioned on the podcast, and you can view the show notes for our full disclosures. With that out of the way, today I'm thrilled to have on Ryan Zer, the Chief Commercial Officer at the Web3 Foundation. This was an awesome episode where we discuss everything from how the Web3 Foundation is ushering in the new decentralized web where users control their data to Polkadot, a high-profile interoperability project. I recently wrote a post on Polkadot exploring my concerns, so it was great to have Ryan on to discuss them. The post is linked in the show notes below. If you learned something on this episode, do us a favor and share it on Twitter. With that, let's jump in. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on Ryan Zur, Chief Commercial Officer at Web3. How's it going, Ryan? Hey Tom, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Good. Thanks so much for taking the time. So Ryan, why don't you give us your quick rundown of your background and how you got started in crypto? Um, I was CEO of a renewables company down in, in Brazil um, in 2012 and started using Bitcoin uh, as rails to, to send money out of the country. Um, it was just the cost of remittance was, was absolutely insane. Um, and so kind of took the famous trip down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole uh, that way. Um, moved into some mining and um, started a Bitcoin remittance company, which I sold in 2014 to focus 100% on Ethereum at that time. Um, was doing a bunch of angel investing, which is sort of uh, cold call uh, projects and teams and offered to ha- help beyond um, deploying some capital, but then obviously deploy some capital along, alongside. And um, uh, was sort of first money in the door in some of the early. Uh, Ethereum projects, um, Maker, Augur, uh, obviously Ethereum itself, things like that. And, uh, um, and then uh, moved on to uh, help grow uh, Polychain. I was a first employee at Polychain uh, after Olaf um, and helped take that from fund from, um, from its beginnings to, you know, to obviously the largest fund in the space today. Um, uh, Olaf and I decided to go our separate ways uh, you know, actually kind of last year at this time, sort of, uh, late September, early October last year. And, uh, I've been helping out, uh, with the web three foundation and the impending poke dot launch, uh, ever since. So that's sort of been the, um, the rundown. That's a storied career and a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. Yeah. I've been some crazy stories along the way for sure. Yeah, no, I don't doubt it. So you know, the Web3 Foundation is, you know, I feel like it's kind of vague from the outside, but you guys are obviously trying to build out like the new version of the internet. What's the main focus or focuses of the Web3 Foundation? Um, well, it's very broad. Uh, the Web3 Foundation uh, has been set up to s- steward the set of technologies um, or the software stack known as Web3. So that is the decentralized serverless internet. Um, the first sort of major undertaking. Uh, has been the Polkadot project, but there, um, I would expect that there are other, uh, you know, privacy preserving and uh, decentralized uh, applications and protocols that Web3 uh, constructs along the next few years. That's awesome. And, you know, one of your focuses, I mean, you tweet a lot and you share about, a lot about it. You spend a lot of time in China helping build out Web3.0 there. And I feel like a lot of that news doesn't make it back here. What's the vibe out in China, and is there anything you could share, kind of, on how it's developing out there? Yeah, so uh, you know, Web three is happening in China, maybe more than any other place on the planet. Um, there are uh, more users of DApps out there than anywhere else. There are probably more developers and more uh, sort of experiments at DApps across the Web three ecosystem. You know. Uh, across a number of different protocols. Um, the excitement out there is, uh, uh, is certainly very different from, from what we see in the West. Um, I would argue that the current sort of bull market, certainly in Bitcoin, has been driven primarily from China. Um, 
And so we're really excited about uh, about what's happening there, uh, all the building going on. Um, when we go out there, it's uh, a tremendous reception. Um, and, you know, really, they get the, the Web3 ethos. Like, it makes sense to them. Um, there's actual use cases that... Uh, that real world people sort of outside of crypto are, are using on, on an everyday basis, whether it's like remunerated social networks or, um, or other things. So uh, for me, it is a, uh, you know, kind of a must win battle market um, where, uh, you know, if you can be successful in China, um, that alone can drive, you know, billions of dollars of valuation. It can drive tremendous adoption. It can drive, um, you know, just generally success uh, from what you would hope for from a, from a layer one. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think that Web3 is resonating more in China due to more restrictive governments? Or what do you think is actually driving it more than in the West? There's, there's a range of, of, of feedback that I get every time I go out there. And I've been out there basically once a month for, you know, the better part of this, this year. Um, but I think, you know, the Chinese market really resonates with just the economic side of this. And, and I, I kind of like the purity of that because we've spent so much time, especially in, um, those of us in the Ethereum ecosystem, trying to like virtue signal that, you know, the money doesn't matter and, and, and things like that. And then you get out there and they're like, no, you know, we're very transparent. We want to know how we can get paid um, with your protocol or your application. And that doesn't need to be just purely speculation, although it's you know, historically been uh, a lot of speculation, uh, but they're certainly looking for like financial incentives uh, and they're driven on financial incentives. And there's a purity and simplicity to that, which I actually find really refreshing. Um, and so... You know, so DeFi applications make make a ton of sense, and there there are a number out uh, out there. I mentioned before, um, crypto remunerated social networks. Um, was really surprised by this young team uh, at Bihu, uh, B I H U dot com, that has basically like crypto Twitter, but you can send little micro um, transactions rather than like likes and retweets, uh, and it's only crypto conversation. Uh, and so stuff like that, I think, is 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 really compelling, and uh, and they kind of take it from an economics first perspective, which uh, you know, again, I, I think is refreshing, and and we can be honest with ourselves about that. Yeah, that is refreshing, and it's not only transparent, but I guess it leads you to be able to focus on like real business opportunities here versus kind of building it and hoping people will come. Yeah, well, it's certainly like the narrative can be it can be then focused on that. Like this is a, this is feedback that I've had, you know, time and again, that they want something that is um, legitimate technology that they can build and have a very wide um, design space, as, as you've mentioned that, that Polkadot offers. And then, uh, and then they want to understand how, um, uh, you know, how they can drive certain financial incentives and, and, and crypto economics offers them and they would like to do that. Uh, and so people are really excited about that. That's great. That's awesome. And Ryan, how do you like differentiate between like more of the, you know, I say scam projects like the Trons out there and the legitimate teams building Web3 in China? Like, I feel like culturally in the West, it's kind of hard to differentiate between the two. Yeah. And then when you get out there as well, um, you also realize that there's a lot of people, you know, building on on some of these networks that weren't we in the West don't, don't think are legitimate. Uh, and, and so it becomes a bit of a difficult conversation of like, you know, why you may want to move off Tron and build, build on Polkadot and they've spent their entire business on, on that, say, so to speak. Um, although I don't think people should, should necessarily uh, discount the work that say Tron and EOS have done out there. They've, they've clearly um, had a great head start in, in communication um, in that market. But the, the meetups and events that we've held, it's often a really technical audience. Um, and we get the feedback that, and I confess, as an investor, I was wrong about this a couple of years ago when I was, I, I was very 
um, excited about the Chinese market kind of like late 2017 into early 2018 and, and did um, Nervos and, and Zilliqa and a couple of other projects out there, um, yeah, invested that is. And I was taking the approach that uh, China wanted a homegrown crypto project, that Ethereum would not be the thing out there, that you know, they would want their own native stable coin that's Chinese homegrown. And what we've, what we've come to realize is that there's actually a lot of interest in sort of the foreign uh, crypto projects, in part because you know, some of the cypherpunks and, and developers are, say, more confident that there isn't a cryptographic backdoor that, say, the Polyboro can could, could have access to. Um, and there's just sort of this, this like technical legitimacy. So um, Polkadot, for, you know, um, uh, for all intents and purposes, has certainly been put in that category of this is a technically sophisticated uh, project and we can build on this with confidence. And it kind of fits that, um, that bill of a, of a decentralized sort of um, anarchist network. Uh, and, and as a result, it's got a great groundswell uh, great, and great fan base out there. I've been uh, really surprised just like, you know, a few months ago, I sent out a, a couple of tweets that I'd be in Shanghai and could do a, a meetup. And then somebody reached back out to me and said, hey, could you do one in, in this place called Hangzhou? And I'd never really heard of Hangzhou uh, un, until that time. I was, you know, sure, thinking that I'd go out there and it'd be like a, maybe a dozen people or something like that. And I get out to this Hangzhou, which is a university town, and it was literally hundreds of people that, that uh, had filled the room that night. And they were out in the halls and watching on the TV out in the foyer and stuff like that. It was just crazy the interest that they have in this project. And so um, in talking with people and getting feedback, it really came down to, you know, we want to understand how we can do this as our job and get paid. And then two, we want to have confidence that this is, um, you know, a legitimate Web3 project, which obviously they have with, with respect to Polkadot. Ryan, that's awesome. I mean, you spend so much time there. And, you know, I just have one question on like business versus users there. Like, it's clear to me from talking to you that people building DeFi projects or projects out in China clearly want to make money with it. And that's kind of hard to do with DeFi projects that are, say, built on Ethereum. But what's stopping the average Chinese consumer from adopting DeFi projects or any projects, say, built on Ethereum or others that are built today? Do you think it's a cultural thing or? I'm just kind of wondering like why they're not using MakerDAO or if they are or, or set protocol, things like that. Um, well, I mean, it's difficult to track, say, like the source of, um, of funds locked up in, in different DeFi projects. But I would argue that a majority um, of the capital that's locked up in, in, Maker, in MakerDAO is probably uh, coming out of China. Um, I know Rune way back in like the early, early, early days of, of MakerDAO when we were talking about it, and uh, I think it was even called eDollar uh, when, when we were having this conversation, he called the stablecoin DAI as a tip of the hat to the Chinese market because he had already spent time out there and, um, uh, and understood how important that market would be. Uh, I don't think either of us in that very early conversation uh, understood how important China would be to to the crypto market, but um, you know maybe he did, and that's why he he named it as such, and that's why they've got a really strong team out there. And um, I would argue that there's pretty good traction there that you know versus versus the the rest of the world, and it'll continue to grow. However, you know we do have to re remember uh, it's a very very different market, um, so it's very different than say any other Asian country or any other. Uh, obviously, any other Western country. In fact, uh, you know, my background in management, the rule book on China used to be if, you, if so, if you're running like a global organization as part of a, a, a large wind turbine manufacturer at one time, you'd run the organization globally uh, functionally, right? So, based on your supply chain and then, and then sales markets. But then you would have a wholly other business that was its own self-contained entity just for China. So you'd have the, the whole world organized functionally, but then China is China 
for China and it would produce for China and sell to China and it would all be just self-contained in, in, um, in China. So it's a really peculiar market. And um, for many years now, business leaders around the world have understood that it has to be um, approached in a completely unique way versus every other market on the planet. Um, and so I think building awareness there uh, requires a bit of a different approach than what we've done in, in the West. And, and teams, a lot of DeFi teams just will need to understand the, the requirement of putting boots on the ground, having you know, teams there building and, and communicating with that market. That's really important. Yeah, that's, that's great, Carl. And I think it was Dovi Wan who recently tweeted that Polkadot was doing well in China because they have the boots on the ground and they have people out there doing meetups and meeting with people and kind of explaining everything that's going on. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to have more. Um, the Web3 Foundation will have full-time staff in China. Over the, it already has some staff in China, but we'll have more full-time staff in, uh, in China. And over the next little while, I would expect a, um, uh, I would expect a Beijing office probably before the end of the year. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a recognition of, of how important that market is. And then in order to attend to that market appropriately, uh, you know, it can't be this guy from the West flying over once in a while and doing a meetup, right? It's got to be, you know, China for China, um, uh, local people talking about the project and how it appeals to other locals. And so, um, I'm, I'm excited about the progress there. That's awesome. And last question about China, Ryan, I mean, what's your take and this is kind of like a dual question, but what's your take on the government restricting a lot of these decentralized protocols and projects? and you know, do you think that'll lead people in China to adopt some of the projects that are already built out, say, from the West? Or I'm just wondering if the Chinese government could kind of hamper the growth or adoption of Eastern built and run crypto projects here. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think this it, uh, goes back to the to the previous point where, it, you know, and, and I've been saying to people, the Chinese market is is somewhat looking at crypto almost as the way that they do luxury goods rather than say like industrial goods, where they want the foreign one, right? They trust the the foreign one has a certain amount of trust because of 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 certain extenuating circumstances, and to the extent that um, the Chinese government clamps down on the networks that it can clamp down on, that it can exact control on, and we've obviously seen some. Some some rumors and and hearsay over the last few days. Um, I think that bodes well for you know your Ethereum's and your polka dots of the world, where you know for better or for worse, there's nothing that the Polyboro can do there. Um, uh, and and that's what we're seeing. You know, that's the feedback that we're getting from the market. In any case, that makes a lot of sense. So it's a good segue to talk about polka dot for a bit. Sure. You know, the project that Web3 is championing. So I have a post out, Polkadot, Promise and Problems we could go through. And, you know, it's great to have you on to kind of, you know, give more insight and nuance on anything I got wrong or, you know, anything worth discussing. But I guess to start, just give us your overview on, you know, what Polkadot is and what the ultimate goal is. Yeah. So um, at its core, Polkadot is uh, interoperability infrastructure. So the idea is to be able to connect disparate blockchains to one another. Um, That implies a few important uh, breakthroughs. Uh, One is the idea of, uh, of shared security or pooled security. Uh, where team where a layer one can offload its security um, model to the Polkadot relay chain and thereby save in inflation. Um, today, it costs you know typically millions of dollars a year uh, for most chains, tens of millions of dollars a year for Ethereum into the hundreds of millions, and for Bitcoin into the billions uh, of inflation to pay for security of their chain. Um, uh, projects can come together and basically pool that and drop the cost of security of the chain by an order of magnitude, um, which is kind of one of the big uh, like aha moments for me. Um, the other is arbitrary cross-chain messaging. So there's lots of of uh, you know interoperability projects out there 
Um, but most of them are focused around cross-chain value transfer, token transfer, bonded cross-chain token transfer. And uh, whereas Polkadot allows for arbitrary cross-chain messaging, so any smart contract on, say, Ethereum could call a smart contract on Definity, and a Definity smart contract could, say, send a transaction on the, uh, on the Bitcoin network or something like that. Um, and that's obviously a very compelling and a big step forward. Um, although as you, you know, highlight in your post, which I, I must say was really, really well done. Uh, it also opens up, that also opens up a very significant attack surface, um, that we, you know, we as a community are still, still exploring what that, what that uh, implies. And then from there, there are a range of other, uh, very compelling innovations. So with substrate, and and cumulus you can build your own application specific chain and i'm sure you're seeing this as an investor i know i started seeing this in kind of mid 2018 where the very mature entrepreneurs that were starting to move into the space were saying no you know we don't want to be uh subordinate to the design decisions at the layer one we want to be able to control our design space from the ground up and make our own decisions with respect to consensus and security model for our users and our use case. Um, and so, you know, for example, if you have like a high frequency trading app that requires a, a, a light client, maybe you'll, you'll use a DAG instead of like a, a proof of stake or nominated proof of stake or something like that. So allowing very sophisticated teams to control that and have their own security model, their own um, consensus mechanism that they can plug and play is, is very interesting because um, then they can iterate on that. They can offload security to the relay chains, so then iterating on this sort of new chain concept can, can be done again at an, a cost, which is an order of magnitude lower than it would be today. Uh, and then the last thing that I personally like I understand and certainly respect the arguments on the other side, but I'm, I'm very pro-governance. I think a clear set of rules for how our community evolves and how our protocol should evolve is important. Um, so, for example, like, you know, in the early days of Ethereum, we never talked about the concept of like rough governance. Um, I, I was always under the, under the impression that we would move towards some kind of, of on-chain governance. Um, and, uh, and so I really like the idea of having very clear governance structure. Um, I like some of the innovations that are being put forward, or, you know, the experiments that are being put forward, whether it be the council, um, whether it be adaptive quorum biasing. I think that's a, that's a very elegant solution to what has been the biggest governance problem thus far, which is achieving minimum quorum. Um, and so those are some of the things that I'm really excited about Polkadot um, and, and think that these experiments are, are you know, worthwhile to try. And, uh, and as long as we look at it from an experimental lens, as you know, we push the entire ecosystem forward, um, that's, uh, you know, you arrive at the conclusion that, yeah, these are probably worthwhile things to try out. It's an awesome overview of everything Polkadot, Ryan. And, you know, I think it's, and, you know, thanks for the kind words on the post. I'm going to link that on the bottom of the show notes, but I think it's worth starting at the beginning and we'll definitely get to governance, but I think it's worth highlighting how important simple, you know, data to data, arbitrary data calls are when you don't have to base it in like a simple token transfer, kind of like on Cosmos today or, or other chains. What's the real value in being able to do arbitrary data calls? Like, what types of applications do you open up that you can't do when you're relying on just token transfers? Well, I mean, there you can have, like, again, messaging, right? So we could have we could have messages across chain, which could be, a, you know, any type of of message. You could have cross chain um, chat apps or, or or various things. Um, you know, somewhat similar to. Smart contracts generally, I think when we started, we knew and we know now that like the things that will pop up will probably be very different than the things that we expect uh, today. Like if I could, if I could make a guess at it today, I'd expect like, you know, 
a, a multi-chain stable coin and obviously a multi-chain DEX. But then that's me thinking in my like Ethereum blockchain 2.0 mindset. And maybe the things that are actually that Polkadot is actually useful for are totally different. The DEXs and stable coins kind of stay in Ethereum land as, as kind of the, the premier domain of programmable money. And that's great. And it's great for me. And I'd be super happy if, if, if that's the case. And, and Polkadot becomes something new and unique that enables completely novel use cases that we haven't even dreamed up of yet. That's awesome. That's, that's a great segue into my next question for you. I mean, originally when I started looking at Polkadot, I thought, you know, wow, this is competitive to Ethereum. And, you know, I still think it is in some ways, but you're obviously a huge interoperability player. But let's discuss building on Polkadot. I mean, you guys allow developers to build their own parachain, which is, you know, max customiz- customization, or to deploy on an existing parachain, such as on Edgeware, which runs smart contracts. You know, how do you view the land kind of evolving here? Because, you know, I would kind of say that you guys are competitive to smart contract platforms, but that might not be the case. Like, what's the ultimate goal there for attracting? Yeah, I think Edgeware certainly will be competitive to smart contract platforms. Um, It is a smart contract platform, right? Um, And so I'm excited to to see where that goes. And, um, you know, and Polkadot will be really the domain, uh, uh, like the... Deploying on Polkadot will be the domain of very sophisticated teams that are probably relatively visible, relatively well capitalized, um, and have a very specific reason for being their own chain. Whereas the vast majority of applications, DeFi, um, messaging, uh, you know, any kind of like social engagement, things like that, that will probably sit on smart contract chains that then can tie in either via a bridge like Ethereum or natively as a parachain um, like like Edgeware. You know, just focusing on parachains for a second, I mean, it obviously allows the developers to customize everything they want. So block times, policies, everything, governance, but while also getting the shared security of Polkadot itself. But I guess my question is, you know, how do you envision like, how does this open up experimentation when teams have to have enough money to lease a parachain to begin with? I feel like that's that could be a big roadblock for like the experimentation process for those that really need the full customer. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair comment. Um, so one thing I would I would mention about the cost of being a parachain: the amount that's staked is not the cost, right? So if somebody has to stake, say. Um, $3 million in dots, their actual cost is their lost opportunity cost of, an, of uh, uh, interest as, say, a validator or a nominator. So it's th- their actual cost is, is closer to the, the rate of inflation on the network, which is the amount of, like the percentage of the network that is validating multiplied by the interest rate. And so if we have, um, Say an interest rate of ten percent, and half half of the network is uh, is validating. Then you have an inflation of five percent. So that uh, that parachain that staked three million dollars is effectively paying one hundred and fifty thousand for um, for their security. Now, if you, it always needs to be paired against the cost of inflation based security. So if you're a layer one today, if you're any one of the layer ones in, say, the top 50 uh, today, it costs you somewhere in the tens of millions of dollars to bootstrap that decentralized group of miners or validators to, um, to provide the necessary security to your chain. Um, while the number, you know, 150,000 is obviously a very significant one, especially if that's like just for a single year and then, and then it's gone and you may be... Um, you know, you know, you may be out of luck going forward, and we we can get into the implications of that here in a minute. Uh, it, you know, in most cases, it's dramatically cheaper than inflating your token. And I mean, we can we can even see this with the discussions in in Ethereum today, where anything that adds to inflation, people get very very angry about. You know, 
in spite of the governance problems that we've had, in, or I shouldn't say problems, but in spite of the, the rough governance that we've had in, in Ethereum, uh, the one thing that people can almost always come together on is lowering inflation to the minimum amount possible as quickly as possible. And I think that that's been the case in Ethereum, and that would be the case for, for many other chains. And so then if you want to lower the inflation to, to the minimum amount possible, things like pooled security become uh, an interesting avenue that you, that you really need to evaluate. That's, that's a really fair point on the opportunity cost and the interest for dot holders on a parachain there. And I mean, I guess the hurdle then comes down to, you know, it's not so much lost money or cost, but it's just securing enough dots to get a parachain. Are there any mitigants out there like, you know, are the Web3 potentially going to give loans out to teams or are there any ways for teams to basically come up with that money outside of you know, any scammy raises or stuff to secure a parachain? I'm just wondering if there's any mitigants there. I think there will be a number of opportunities to, uh, to leverage Web3's resources to, to, to get a parachain slot. Um, nothing that I could like uh, announce today, but it would not surprise me if, um, you know, if like a, a loan application process or grant application process um, existed for for parachains, and it will actually a grant application process exists today, but nobody's applying for grants just to be able to secure a parachain. Um, so I, I think there will be some opportunities. However, I would argue that if you did an IPO, um, so an initial parachain offer where you issue some tokens on your chain in order to capture enough dots to um, to stake to be a parachain. As long as, um, as long as you do it, say like a lock drop, and people are have their dots returned to them, if you don't secure a subsequent parachain slot, um, I would say that that's probably not, you know, not that scammy because again, people like it's a low opportunity cost thing. People get their dots back, right? If I'm, let's say, Edgeware does does one of these IPOs, and I. Um, put my dots into that lock drop, uh, you know, if things don't work out, I get my dots back. So it's not like they're ripping me off, right? I guess the other question on attracting developers, since that's so critical, is, you know, developers can either launch Parachain or build on an existing one, like let's say Edgeware. But, you know, in your mind, when you're thinking about attracting, you know, potentially millions of developers in China or developers that are not in crypto today, how do how does Polkadot attract them if the parachains that they want to build on like aren't yet launched. Like let's say I need a DEX or a stable coin and you know hopefully in the future that's its own parachain, but today it isn't, so I can't build my app that would leverage that. I'm just kind of wondering about the the chicken and the egg issues here. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good point that you bring up in your in your post, um, among a number of, of good points. Um so certainly you know I've been communicating in the community for, for, for quite some time that the longer uh, you extend uh, to launch of, of any kind of like parachain, the more difficult you make it for yourself to attract developers because they become more entrenched in their current communities. And my observation over the last, say, year or so, um, but certainly in the last like six months, is that there is certainly a lot of stickiness. Um, I have been surprised that uh, of how much Ethereum has been able to maintain its dev community in spite of very compelling financial incentives in places like, you know, uh, Tezos and EOS and, and, and others. Um, and so that's, that's very interesting. Um, the fact that we observe that devs, certainly Western devs, are relatively sticky, uh, and that you know, the longer this, the longer it drags out before somebody can play around with something, the more difficult it becomes, and not only more difficult but exponentially so. Right? It's like it's geometrically more difficult um, to get somebody to move, say, a year from now rather than a week from now, um, and so we'll see how that uh, plays out. The good thing is there's a lot of stuff today that people can play around with and, um, and start to build. And that's really what, you know, what I noticed in, 
in China is that people were already building all kinds of crazy things on substrate that we hadn't even thought about um, here here in the West. And um, uh, and so fortunately, the, the team of Parities put out a good amount of, of resources to get people who want to play around with things uh, going. And, and, and so that, that helps. Um, and then the other thing, the other strategy that I would take to this is uh, maybe it's a question of not, um, not going after the, the exact same people that are building in other ecosystems. So not like trying to say convince an Ethereum or an EOS dev to move over. Maybe it's about unlocking the next wave of developers. And so part of my thesis going forward, generally for Web3, is that we should be doing uh, events and hackathons and global showcases in places all around the world that bring together three important factors. A large population base combined with really strong academic institutions. Those two factors together creates lots of devs regularly, like continue flow of new devs. And then the third thing is some reason to really subscribe very fervently to the Web3 ethos. So whether it's like a mistrust in institutions or, or just the sickness with, with corruption in one's country or inflation or various other things that would, would lead one to, to believe that, uh, you know, to really believe in this Web3 ethos at the core. What that ends up, what those three factors together end up creating is, you know, streams of new devs coming into the space. And those are probably, you know, some of the, the more attractive ones to, to, to try to communicate with, to get to build new things. So, you know, instead of being in places like, like Boston and San Francisco being places like like Bangalore and Santiago, right? Like, you know, going around the world to, to, to places like Taipei and uh, Istanbul and St. Petersburg and, and, and these kind of, I don't want to say forgotten markets, but, but, you know, large population bases that have lots of technical talent um, and, and a reason to, to build all these cool new decentralized web apps. That's awesome. Great info on attracting devs. And I feel like you were just reading off memory of all the places you've been in the last couple of months. Yeah, no, certainly it's been, it's been a lot of, a lot of air miles the last little while with, with obviously the fundraise, which we're, we're very happy with, with the final result there. And, uh, and then just, just getting out and communicating with teams. No, that that's awesome. And, you know, you said that a lot of people are building on Substrate, and one of the things I really liked about Substrate was the drag and drop nature for devs, because I'm all about making it easier for devs to build. And you know, you're already seeing a lot of teams build on that, and then you have Kusama, which just launched. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably not, but yep. how's the um, how's the reaction to Kusama been? And and for those that don't know, it's kind of Polkadot's semi testnet, if I say that correctly. Yeah, so it's certainly like an experimental um, uh, relay chain uh, where you know no promises made. Let's see, let's see what happens. However, I wouldn't necessarily reduce it to a test net because it will have real financial incentives. Um, so it's been it's been published recently that uh, a certain amount of dots will be distributed to uh, Kusama. Uh, token holders and network participants. The way that that's going to happen hasn't been announced yet, and like how much and things like that hasn't exactly been um, been clarified specifically. But a decent amount, you know, a, a lot of money is going to be issued to uh, to to people on, on Kusama. So uh, definitely not a test net um, uh, in and of itself, but certainly an experimental bed uh, and. and you know who knows what happens there. Uh, generally, I would say the the Kusama reception's been uh, relatively positive. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of pent up excitement for just getting Polkadot out the door. So I think most of the community just sees this as like one of the last steps to a fully live main Polkadot mainnet, which is which is you know really what we're all here for. Um, and 
Uh, and we'll see how it goes. You know, the, the network itself has not gone live, although you can claim your Kusamas already. Um, if you have dots, so if you participated in, in the dot fundraise in one of the polka dot fundraises, you can claim your Kusamas. And then you can also claim Kusamas in a faucet, um, to get like a little bit uh, of Kusamas just to get going as a validator. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there'll be some, some mechanism of, of exchange that people will be able to, to get some Kusamas, uh, once the network gets going and they want to validate and play around with stuff. So, uh, still a little early to, to make a judgment on Kusama, but, um, uh, obviously we've been very encouraged by the excitement and, and, you know, again, once again, led by the excitement out in China. No, that's awesome. You basically have a sandbox for developers to play around with everything, uh, with real world incentives kind of involved there. Yeah, no, it, it should, we should know that that is a relay chain, right? So, so again, paired chains will, will, uh, will connect into that. And, and if, you know, people who want to play around with like an application or a smart contract of some kind, um, maybe something like Edgeware is, is a good spot to, to do that. Wow, that's awesome. No, that's cool. And so Kusama could basically be live in the future of Polkadot. It could be its own relay chain? Uh, yes. So version two and beyond, Polkadot will likely begin to stack relay chains and, and sort of have parallel operating relay chains as a scalability mechanism. Um, and I sometimes liken Kusama to like um, to Polkadot's Litecoin. Uh, where you know this didn't happen, but you know Litecoin was was supposed to try just different new things that uh, people weren't doing in in Bitcoin, like SegWit and and other stuff like that. Um, and so I expect Kusama to be kind of the first place where innovation is rolled out, and then and then it migrates over to Polkadot. But Kusama stands as its own network and. Uh, and we'll continue on after Polkadot's mainnet and should, well, I shouldn't say should, may uh, be value-bearing uh, over time and may have some value as a result of, of all of this over time and then interact seamlessly with Polkadot as we move towards version two and be able to stack relay chains to scale further. Because as you have incorrectly pointed out in, in, in your post, one of the big um questions that remain is is with respect to scaling parachains on Polkadot. You know, we expect Polkadot to go live with say less than half a dozen parachains. Um it, it, it would surprise me if we were able to scale say into the thousands of, of parachains or even well into the hundreds of parachains uh on a single relay chain. We'll probably have to stack relay chains to get there. That's pretty cool. So if you were to stack relay chains together and, you know, throughput isn't like the best metric. I know people obsess about it, but what do you attempt to achieve? Is it, is it simple multiplication at that point? Like, you know, parachain throughput times parachain throughput, or how do you think about that? Um, well, I think about it. So, so often people come to me and say, you know, how many transactions per second can, 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 can poke it out to? Whereas my, you know, this chain over here alleges that they're going to be able to do 100,000 uh, uh, transactions per second. And I often say, well, you know, right now, Polkadot is running testnet somewhere in the single digit thousands per uh, per second. And uh, let's say maybe we get up to, to 10,000 per second on a, um, on a given chain. But then when you stack those together, so stack 10 of those together, and all of a sudden you're at hundred thousand, right? Because they run in parallel, um, and that parallelization of security. And so then, once you, so then you've got a, a relay chain with ten parachains, each running uh, ten thousand per second. And then you stack ten parachains, or sorry, ten relay chains together. Now we've got a million transactions per second, right? Now we're talking Visa, Mastercard level, right? Um, and that isn't through some like you know, magical math or, or, or some like grandiose vision for, uh, you know, for scaling or some, uh, you know, some fix or patch or other things. That's just copy, paste, repeat of what actually works today. 
and being able to parallelize things in that manner. So it's a really like simple, intuitive approach to scaling. Like often when, when we get into some of these other like scaling mechanisms, you, you're like, you, you know, you, you kind of lose me along the way. But, um, but this should just make sense intuitively, right? To the investor, to the user, to, to the developer that we can, we can parallelize this stuff and then, and then achieve scalability through parallelization. That's awesome. And that's an incredible caller. And Ryan, is that, you know, kind of think about it like stacking layer ones together, I guess, in a way, but do you run into an issue there of like, you know, Ethereum's trying to do sharding and a main issue for them to achieve scaling is cross shard communications. Do you run into like issues with cross parachain communications and if it's not solved yet, that's fine. I just wasn't sure if that's an issue or not. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, very, very transparently, um, you know, cross chain messaging and communication, uh, it would not surprise me if that was a limiting factor to, to scalability, um, certainly in the short term. Um, now again, there is some parallelization that, that can be achieved, but, uh, you know, we'll have to continue to, uh, to evolve and, and, and we don't have all of the answers today, but that's okay. Um, because the architecture is, is designed well to, you know, to be able to evolve and, and find new answers. That's awesome. And last question for you, Ryan, on the parachains. I mean, one of my concerns was on the two-year limit. I mean, it's definitely a really cool curation technique to kind of focus on, you know, parachains that are actually driving value and, and infrastructure, which is awesome. And, you know, I guess you can cut down on compute and state and stuff like that, I believe. But I guess my concern there is, like, if a parachain loses its lease, like, does everything built on top of it break? Or, like, are there mitigants in place for that? I think like my first sort of knee-jerk reaction to, to this is two years is actually an eternity in this space. Like think, try to like think back for a moment to two years ago uh, in this space and like where we were and what was. That's a good point. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's actually like sets of six month intervals that you can, if you were very well capitalized, you could buy up four and have a full two, two years. Um, uh, and that's, you know, I would expect some sophisticated teams to do that to the extent that they want to de-risk. If I was building a parachain today, I don't know if I'd want to lock myself into it for two years, right? Because um, like, what if something else cool comes along? And then, you know, I want to go and build over there, but then I've locked up millions of dollars of capital for the next couple of years. Hey, you know, how am I going to explain that to my community and my constituents? Um and then, you know, we go back to this and, and I understand that, like the counter argument, but for the most part, the Polkadot relay chain has been designed for very sophisticated teams. And so, you know, one would think that if it's, you know, you use the coin or you use the example of a, of a popular stable coin. If a, if a stable coin is popular, let's say they get the, the traction of, of like MakerDAO on, on, on Polkadot. MakerDAO today, but this is years ahead. So, you know, MakerDAO would be much larger as well. Um, but let's say you've got, you know, call it $100 million uh, locked up in, uh, in that. And that's, you know, very popular and producing. One would think that that team should be professional enough to secure a parachain slot uh, appropriately. And, um, and yes, it's the domain of sophisticated entities. And if they're not, you know, if they don't act professionally in sophisticated manner uh, and allow themselves to just like be without a parachain slot, that's, you know, that's an unfortunate byproduct, but it, it is what it is. One important point there though, is that the parachain slot auctions will be staggered so it's not like there's going to be this like grand, you know, auction once every six months, like January 1st and June 1st, everybody, you know, comes together in Web3 and we like get our batons and, and, and vote uh, or, or, or bid on parachains. It, they'll be staggered so that like every few weeks or every month, an opportunity comes up. So even if a team was you know, messed up and they didn't get a parachain slot because they were bid too low or, or, um, or somebody, you know, somebody just did something wrong. 
there's an, there's an opportunity in a very short period of time to rectify that. Uh, and, and again, you know, at some point we have to, we have to assume that, you know, that people are going to act like sophisticated adults and, and, and get themselves organized if, uh, if they're serious about playing here. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great call. And to Polkadot's defense here, there are several mitigants. I, I do mention the article for those looking, I mean, you know, migrating to another chain, fundraising, like an I, IPO, like you mentioned earlier, and, and a few other methods. So that's interesting, but it'll definitely be interesting to see um, how the process pans out when we have the first parachain up for uh, renewal. Yeah. I mean, we freely admit that this is not without uh, its own limitations and its own risks and, and certain drawbacks. And it's not, it's not perfect. Right. Um, it, again, I go back to, to my original sort of thesis on this is that a lot of these things are worth trying. And, you know, I want to try it and that, that that's fine because we're doing other things over in Ethereum and uh, I'm super happy about how Ethereum's evolving and, and, and it's evolving in a, in a different way. And so why not, go, you know, why not try these different experiments over here without putting, uh, you know, more than, more than $25 billion um, at risk. Uh, and, and we can try with Polkadot and with Parachains, we can try some of these controlled experiments. Um, without so much capital uh, at risk. That's a good point. And Ryan, I wanted to talk for a little bit about governance. Polkadot takes a really innovative and you know new approach to governance with dot holders and time locks and your council. Um, you know, what is the most interesting part of Polkadot's governance, or, or are you thrilled with where you guys are now with it? So interestingly enough. Definitely not thrilled with with where we are right now, and I think it will continue to evolve, and it has evolved since since I I came into the organization. I've uh, observed a very significant evolution. Um, one thing I really like about it is the adaptive quorum biasing. Um, you know, I've been a big fan of of crypto governance for for some time, and have observed that. The biggest problems that we've had with with governance has often been around achieving minimum quorum, um, most notably the blow up of the DAO, which was just a problem of minimum quorum. We didn't, you know, we didn't achieve minimum quorum on the moratorium, which was a very obvious measure. And it was kind of like this Brexit moment where everybody kind of went to bed thinking that somebody else was going to vote uh, in favor of the moratorium. And then we woke up and nobody had voted for the moratorium. And then all of a sudden somebody um, uh, used a few of the, or a couple of those exploits to to hack the DAO, and so the adaptive quorum biasing allows you to achieve um, to, to just evolve the protocol, even though you may not have ideal turnout on a given measure, and and sort of the the, the council exists to provide uh, sort of a tee up of like very obvious measures so that they can be pushed through relatively quickly. Cause at the end of the day, this needs to, this needs to function, right? It needs to like work. It, you know, it, it will come down to uh, it, like all blockchains at the end of the day, people in a community finding social consensus and pushing the protocol forward. Um, and, and I think Polkadot has a couple of mechanisms like adaptive quorum biasing that allow you to do that, which I think, Again, is is interesting in part because you know we've we've worn our, our mistakes um, very very directly on our sleeves uh, in the past around uh, minimum quorum. So when a team has governance and um, inputs some like static minimum quorum, like fifteen percent or something, I always just you know shake my head at that. Oh, that's awesome. And for those new to Polkadot, uh, what Ryan's describing is just higher and lower thresholds when uh, to pass measures, uh, depending on the turnout. And then he's also mentioning the council, which is six to 24 people or more or less, um, that basically has a few different powers over the network. Um, and then you guys also have the time locking of dots uh, we could get into, which which basically means that smaller holders can lock up their dots for more voting power over time. Uh, I think, you know, one thing to talk about, Ryan, here is, you know, what's your take on the council? Do you think that it's a point of centralization or do you think that, you know, it helps ensure that progress happens? 
Um, so, you know, the short answer is yes, right? To, to, in, in all honesty, um, obviously, when you reduce consensus from all um, acting nodes in the network to a, a, a smaller subset that must come to, to, to social consensus on a mechanism, that is a movement towards a certain amount of centralization. It's not fully centralized, but it's, say, more centralized than having everybody vote on everything. Problem with having everyone vote on everything is it's untenable, right? And you won't you won't evolve. So, you know, it's one of these things where I think we all accept that certain very ambitious technical projects need some training wheels before we can kind of like completely throw the kite in the air and hope that it flies. So, for example, you know, MakerDAO has a certain amount of centralization around the Oracle. And I was actually very vocal back in 2017 that I thought that that was perfectly fine. And today I, I stand by that thinking that that is perfectly fine because, you know, to add in the mechanisms of decentralized oracles that we were talking about in like 2016 to, to make it out at launch would have probably been irresponsible. No, de- definitely would have been irresponsible. And so in this, I'm kind of the same, the same mindset. Now, just to be clear, I am supremely confident that MakerDAO moves to fully decentralized oracles and in relatively short order, and that is great. Um, and uh, and it should. And then there, so there we see a perfect example of grandfathering in, um, you know, more decentralization, and you know, incidentally, MakerDAO also grandfathered in governance over time, where they effectively had a council as well that really made the decision. But they listen to signal from from the community. So kind of grandfathering in things over time, and maybe maybe one day um, the the council would evolve into something else. Like maybe it grows to instead of a few dozen people, a few hundred people, and coordination is able to be maintained. Um, uh, maybe the whole network decides to evolve in a different direction and. And and dissolve the council over time, and who knows uh, who knows how it plays out. The good thing is the architecture is there to be able to evolve the protocol in whichever way the community wants. And I'm supremely confident that the community will evolve the protocol in a way that I cannot today predict. Um, so, as a, as a, as like a novice measure, as like a, a an early sort of you know rails. Uh, on this thing, I'm I'm in favor of the council, uh, and you know let's 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 just see how it evolves over time before worrying too much about like theoretical elements of centralization. That's that's a good point, and I guess to your point on the council being able to dissolve that. I mean, if there was a plutocracy issue where a lot of rich holders in Polkadot were basically just making decisions, do you think that the dot holders would be able to come together and, and dissolve that council in time? Or do you think that that would kind of bump up against the powers to be? Yeah. So certainly, um, certainly the lockup function allows a, a smaller minority group that has a very strong position with respect to a single measure to have a louder voice. So the lockup feature, which is a feature, it's not a bug, allows you to, you know, to lock up your tokens longer and get more weight with that vote. Um, so a minority could organize uh, in, in this case and, uh, and effectively overthrow you know, a majority set of whales um, if they feel very strongly about a specific measure and... Uh, and, and maybe the whales don't feel as, as strongly about that measure. But, I mean, Gavin has been very direct uh, about his position that, um, you know, you have to choose some kind of, of, of governance mechanism. And plutocracy isn't that bad of one at the end of the day. It's the closest thing that we see with respect to, to corporate governance. and. Um, and certainly democracy, you know, we see all around the world, um, the failures of, 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 you know, one head, one vote and, and so on and so forth. So while plutocracy doesn't necessarily feel great, you know, at the end of the day, 
there are some plutocratic elements uh, of Polkadot as there as there would be for any um, token based uh, self governing blockchain, and you know. In, in place of a better model, which we're all very open-minded to, a, to potentially a better model, um, we do have to move forward. So it's, you know, I would agree with Gavin that plutocracy is probably better than rough consensus. And let's go and try that out. Yeah, no, it's an interesting experiment. And last question for you, Ryan, um, just on governance overall, I mean, What's your take on the whole debate between on and off chain governance? I mean, I personally think that there's obviously issues with bribing and plutocracy, but I also think that you guys solve a lot of the coordination and organization issues that face off chain governance. But, you know, I would preface it that that is somewhat of the magic involved with governing some of these protocols. I am generally a fan of on chain governance and and support experiments in this direction uh, with the caveat that we certainly haven't seen an, an ideal um, model quite yet. And that's why we need to try different new things. Uh, I don't like the concept of, of off-chain governance because there could be just as much collusion, um, bribing and other problems with that. And I serve what I don't really like about this concept of rough consensus or off chain governance is the lack of clarity with it. At least with on chain governance, it's clear rules, right? Like this is how votes will be passed and should measures uh, meet, you know, meet the specific quorum, they get passed. And if you lost on your vote, you can exit the system. And if your vote went through, and you locked up to get your vote through, you can't exit the system, so you're locked into the system and you're locked into the decision that you were just a part of. Um, and just having that very that clarity, right? Um, I, I, I feel like is, is more fair, even though it, you, you know, it, it, it allows people with the most amount of capital often to have a stronger voice. Um, so understand the drawbacks, but then again, in light of like a specifically better model that has clarity and has transparency and decision-making, you know, I'm, I'm stuck back with, with basically token-based voting because I don't really like, you know, I choose clarity over, um, over opaque decision-making as a first principle. And then the model that we achieve clarity in, I can be flexible in that and try different things. And I'm okay with, with, with different measures. That's a fair take. I, I could respect that. And definitely the experimentation. However, Tom, what's your take on, on governance? Like what, what, where do you stand on this? Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to say, like you said, I mean, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin and Ethereum's off-chain governance. Um, I do believe it's messy, but you know, I do think it's somewhat messy on purpose. So you know, whether ideas bubble up from more retail focus like Twitter or Reddit or, you know, more sophisticated platforms like Magicians or ETH Research, I think that, you know, the messy part of the network is, you know, something that makes it good. But, you know, it faces a lot of issues. Like, look how delayed Constantinople is. Um, look at the problems just discussing new things that have to come up. There's obviously a time lag. So I do um, agree with the experiments around um on-chain governance. I just think it might get a little iffy if we run into massive bribing or plutocracy issues. That's, uh, and that's fair. You know, I think it's one of these things where people on both sides of the debate uh, can respect the other, the other position. And for me, it just, we're so early in this space. We don't have the answers. I just want to try a bunch of different things. So I like that Ethereum is moving in, in its direction and we'll see. And, you know, it's like Bitcoin has the most extreme version of, of rough governance and Ethereum is like a more collaborative version of rough governance. And then, okay, so we've got a couple of important experiments in rough governance. Now let's try uh, a bunch of different experiments over in, in, in kind of, uh, like clear rules-based governance. And, and so we need a few more of those. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about the experimentation. You know that. But 
Ryan, it's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Let people know where they can follow you and, and where they could learn more about Web3 and Polkadot. Sure. So with respect to Web3 and Polkadot, check out uh, um, uh, wiki.polkadot.network for the most comprehensive set of resources. Um, kind of dive deep down uh, the rabbit hole there. Uh, I'm available on um, you know Twitter and uh, WeChat and all the standard channels at R Z U R R E R. Um, and uh, I would just like to also thank you for all the work that you do uh, in our space. I think you know the really coherent, intelligent research that um, you and the Delphi team put out is very refreshing. Um, and, uh, it's just fantastic. So, uh, super grateful, uh, that you're doing the work that you do. It's very important. Wow. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate that. And, you know, likewise, huge fan of web three and all the experiments you guys are making at Polkadot. And it's awesome that you guys make the stuff that, you know, we're able to research and, uh, and look at. So thanks so much for that and, and for your time today. Cool. Thank you. Hey everyone, if you enjoyed listening to the episode, please share it on Twitter and LinkedIn and give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store.